What is up, everyone? Ryan Ray here inside the War Room. As always, today we have a great guest on an interesting topic, two topics that fascinate me at least, religion and capitalism. I'm talking about, of course, Benjamin Friedman from Harvard. We'll get to that in a second, but first we got to pay them bills. Folks, I go through four to six books a month on Audible alone. Love Audible. I mean, seriously, I've so far this month I've gone through the teachings of Buddha, um, Thinking Grow Rich. I've got the Invisible Man. I just finished yesterday. How to Train Your Mind. I'm working on right now. I've got one more. I don't know what it is. Anyways, love it, love it, love it, love it. Love Audible. I've been using it for years. My library has hundreds of books, and you should too. They are now a sponsor of this podcast. So excited to be working with those guys. RyanRaySenior.com/audible. RyanRaySenior.com slash audible get you a free trial your boy's gonna hook you up it's great it's fantastic i love it i'm so glad they're partnering with us on this podcast be sure to check it out com slash audible i'll put that in the show notes okay our guest our guest our guest our guest whose book you can get on audible check that out look at me just just taking care of my peeps okay benjamin friedman is the william joseph mayor professor of political economy and formerly chairman of the Department of Economics at Harvard University. Just so we're clear here, he's really smart. Your boy is this your boy. So let's just make sure we're we're all on the same page. He joined the Harvard faculty in 72. His new book is Religion and Capitalism, which uh, Religion and the I can't speak. It's Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, a fundamental reassessment of the foundation of current day economics showing how religious thinking has shaped economic economic thinking ever since the beginning of modern Western economics. Okay. He also has another book, The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, Day of Reckoning, The Consequences of Economic Policy Under Reagan and After. On top of that, this guy's got stuff everywhere. 14 other books and over 150 articles in professional journals aimed primarily at economists and economic policymakers, which means it's probably above my pay grade. But... He was so kind. He was so kind to come on this podcast and to chat about it. Um, and so I will link to his bio at Harvard. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoy this podcast, drop five stars for your boy and for Dr. Friedman. It was so good to talk to him. Be sure to check out his book. And without further ado, here is Benjamin Friedman. Well, Ben, it is lovely to have you on the program today. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, um, a quick question, geographically speaking, I'm down here in Texas, and we're recording this at the beginning of October. The weather is nice and pleasant down here in Texas, finally. Uh, how is the weather in your part of the world? Is it getting is it getting cold early, or are you guys enjoying a nice fall? I am sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's 70 degrees and sunny, because it is always 70 degrees and sunny in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, that's, that's always. That's, Always okay. I did. I wasn't aware of that fact, but okay. There we go. All Happens right. Well, to be true. Always. Always. <laughs> it's like the San Diego of the East Coast is what you're telling me. That is right. Okay. All right. So we have you on today to talk about your book, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. Two of my favorite subjects, actually, religion and capitalism. And so you've got a book that kind of covers both. So we should probably set some terms here uh, and, and define some terms. Uh, when you say religion, what do you mean? And we say capitalism, what do you mean? Because it feels like in 2021, throwing those terms around, um, you don't always get uh, the same definitions when you talk to people. So when you're using those terms, how are you defining them? What I mean by religion is a set of belief structures 
that people have about where the world came from, about what the human purpose is, about what human destinies are. Uh, I don't have in mind religious practice. Many people mean that when they say religion, and that's perfectly valid. But what I have in mind is ideas, and in particular, the ideas about the divine and uh, the divine in relation to uh, humans. And I'm very interested in the book in uh, what belief structures people had at particular times uh, and how those belief structures changed. What I mean by capitalism is the set of ideas that we associate with modern economics, uh, starting with Adam Smith and moving forward from Smith. Uh, we have developed over the last two and a half centuries a whole set of ideas that not just economists share, uh, but uh, in the United States, virtually everybody has a view of markets, how supply and demand matters, uh, what individual initiative is all about, how individual decisions by families, by businesses affect uh, our economy. And the point of the book is to argue, unlike what most people think, uh, that these two sets of ideas, religious ideas and economic ideas, in fact, have a lot to do with one another. The standard story is that they are quite independent and that the evolution of economics, modern Western economics, beginning with Adam Smith, had nothing to do with economics. I argue in the book that that's wrong. I argue that uh, Adam Smith and his contemporaries in forming their economic ideas were powerfully influenced by the new and uh, hotly contended trends of religious thought within the English-speaking Protestant world, and moreover, that those religious ideas have continued to uh, influence economics ever since. So that's, in brief, what I mean by religion, what I mean by capitalism, and how I think the two come together. So if, if I'm catching one of the trends here, um, from the Reformation, you have this idea of the Protestant work ethic that comes out of that. And so it sounds like you're, you're tying that either in, on some capacity to what we have today. Well, I wouldn't put it that way for two reasons. One is <clears throat> you're referring to the famous uh, book by Max Weber, published a little over 100 years ago. Uh, Weber famously argued that what he called the Protestant ethic, which stemmed from uh, the belief in predestination in countries like the Netherlands, the north of Germany, uh, England, and especially the United States, back in the 17th century and on into the early 18th century, affected people's behavior. Uh, and if they believed in predestination, they understood that nothing they as individuals could do could influence whether they were among the saved, according to Calvinist doctrine, that was decided not only before any individual was born, but before the world was created. But they thought uh, that if they were able to start a business successfully, if they would work diligently at their calling, to use another Calvin phrase, uh, if they were thrifty and all of those forms of behaviors that Weber sub, uh, summarized as the Protestant ethic, they thought these would be external signs, 
again, not causes, but external signs that they would um, were among the elect and would be saved. Now, my idea is rather different in uh, two key ways. Uh, one is uh, I'm not looking at the behavior of ordinary people, whether, again, whether people are thrifty, whether they work hard. I'm looking at ideas, and in particular, the ideas of people like Adam Smith and others that you and I and everybody else would recognize as economists. And second, I'm looking at a somewhat later period. To repeat, Weber was primarily looking at the 17th century. Uh, Adam Smith wasn't even born until 1723. I'm looking at the uh, 18th century and beyond. And it so happened that in the middle of the 18th century, right when Adam Smith was coming to young adulthood and forming his views about the world, that is when belief in predestination was going away. Uh, this uh, set of beliefs was hotly contended uh, in England in the latter part of the 17th century and then in Scotland in the first half of the 18th century and then in the United States in the latter half of the 18th century. And not coincidentally, that's when our American Republic was being formed, but that's another story. Uh, my story is about the fact that Adam Smith and David Hume and the other people who gave us modern Western economics grew up right in this period and right in a place where belief in predestination was on its way out. Now, it didn't go out quietly. It was very hotly contended. Uh, people argued about this. People fought and died about this. This is why uh, everybody paid attention. But I think uh, Smith and his contemporaries uh, were very influenced by the new forms of religious thinking and the English-speaking Protestant world. And uh, in particular, these new forms of thinking, uh, separate from contrary to uh, predestination, opened up a more optimistic, uh, more uh, benevolent view of the human character and a more uh, expansive view of human agency. And I think it's that benevolent view of the human character and expansive view of human agency that gave us modern economics and still is a part of economics today. So would you categorize Smith as a, a improvement of the reformers, uh, of the Reformation, uh, a rejection of the Reformation, or just kind of developing his own theory and he just happens to be downstream of the Reformation? It's what you said. Uh, it's what you said last. To to to, to be specific, uh, there is no evidence whatsoever that Adam Smith was a religious man, just none. So my argument is absolutely not that Smith or any of these other key figures uh, were uh, religiously committed individuals who were self-consciously trying to bring their religious beliefs to bear on their uh, professional writing. That isn't the story. Rather, it is that uh, Smith grew up in this world in which debates over religion were all around him. Uh, and they helped form what I call in the book a worldview. He had a, he had a view of the world in which uh, humans uh, have this uh, uh, 
benevolent, uh, well, benevolent is the wrong, in, in, in which humans have a character that can lead to good things. Let's put it that way. And he had a view of the world in which human agency is very important. And it's not because he was a religious man to, uh, uh, to, to repeat. I mean, just for example, when Smith took up his professorship at the University of Glasgow, because it was a religiously founded institution, he had to uh, show up and swear to the Westminster Confession. So yes, he did that. Uh, but he also requested an exemption from the requirement to start every lecture with the, with the prayer. That was a requirement in those days. And Smith didn't want to do that. So he officially requested to be uh, relieved of that. So there's no, no evidence whatsoever that he was a religious man. It was rather that he grew up in the time and in the place when he did. Same as you and I, incidentally. You and I are both Americans, and right. I look looks like I'm a little older than you. So I grew well, up at a, at a uh, time in the 20th century when my views were formed by the American thinking of the day, and Smith was uh, Smith's views were formed by the thinking in the Scotland of the middle of the 18th century, and it just so happened that these new lines of thinking. Uh, about religion were absolutely sweeping the English-speaking Protestant world at that time, Scotland included. Yeah, and, and that's a great thing to, to contemplate there for a second is, um, eh, I don't paint with a, too broad of a brush, but maybe in modern culture, 2021 culture, we don't, we don't look at externalities and where we're at in the world and where we're at in the scope of history and think it has too much uh, influence on us, despite the fact we're being bombarded with marketing and media and sales pitches constantly that do shape us. Um, and so when we look back in history, we have to understand whether Smith is religious or not religious. There are these externalities that are there that are discussions that he's listening in that are part of the daily conversations that are going to shape at least how he thinks and how he responds to those things. Whereas someone else in a different part of the world at that time, they, they're not engaged with those same debates. So they're going to be thinking of different issues um, that, that Smith wouldn't have considered because they're just a different part of the world. Well, I think you put it, I think you put it very well. What's, what's the old, there's some <clears throat> story about the fish is not aware that he's swimming in water. Right. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. You and I <clears throat> don't think of ourselves particularly as having our worldview shaped by the fact that we're living in the America of the early 20th uh, first century, but of course we are. And our worldview is different from what Americans' worldview is going to be in 2121. And uh, even though we're not aware of it, uh, in 2121, somebody is gonna look back and they're gonna say, look at this guy, Ryan Ray. He believed certain things and he didn't even believe them explicitly. He just implicitly assumed all sorts of stuff. Right. And that's because he lived 100 years ago. That's the kind of thought process that my book is, uh, is trying to push. Uh, from the perspective of 2021, we can look back <clears throat> on the middle of the 18th century and we can see the water in which that fish called Adam Smith was swimming, even though he might not have been explicitly aware of it and didn't even talk about it, but it shaped his thinking nonetheless. And that makes 
studying history, um, you interesting and also complex, right? Because you have characters in history um, that do things, and you're like, how in the world could you possibly do this? Or how could you not see this? Or why did you respond that way? But then if you look at the water they're swimming in, it's like, oh, well, it makes sense. And yet for 2020 perspective, 2021 perspective, it still seems odd. So as a historian, how do you balance that maybe um, like, oh my gosh, how did you think this? How could you possibly think this? Um, and also give them a fair treatment for the time and the age they're, they're living in. Uh, you ask a very challenging question, Ryan, and let me make clear, I'm not a historian. I'm an economist, so I don't pretend to be a professional uh, historian, but in order to undertake this project, <clears throat> which I wanted to explore where the thinking of my own discipline, economics, came from, I had to uh, read and think a lot about uh, history. Um, how do you put the two together? What I, the very first thing I did was to ask, was it plausible that living at that time, even people like Smith who were not religious were necessarily having their ideas shaped by religious thinking? Because that in itself, some people might think is a stretch. And I think the answer is yes, because uh, this was an era in which religion was more important and more central and more pervasive and more multidimensional than anything we know in the modern uh, in modern Western civilization. Uh, all uh, religion, all, all educational institutions were religious. Uh, there was a Church of Scotland that dominated patronage in its day. Look, these were issues that, as I mentioned before, people fought and died over uh, just a hundred years before the Thirty Years' War had been more deadly compared to Europe's population than either World War I or World War II, and that was between the Protestants and the Catholics. Uh, within the lifetime of Adam Smith's father, a grandfather, uh, the English Civil War had been similarly uh, deadly, and that was not between the Catholics and the Protestants. That was between two different kinds of Protestants. So these were very important uh, issues. And I persuaded myself, and I hope in the book I've managed to persuade other people that, yes, it is plausible to think that even non-religious people like uh, Smith and his friend David Hume uh, and others, too, were influenced by these uh, these trends, these highly visible then argued over, uh, fought over trends in new thinking in the English-speaking Protestant world. Uh, it's hard to believe that this would be true today, but we live in a different era than they did, and if we're interested in where their ideas came from, we have to we have to take them as they were. They they weren't. 21st century men. They were men of the middle uh, 18th century and the middle 18th century living in Scotland at that. Well, and, and you mentioned war and you mentioned um, the, 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 the Protestant Catholic, um, you know, um, Reformation and what's going on there. And thinking about making decisions in this time period, if, you, if you're teaching at a school which demands <laughs> the Westminster Confessions, um, and you're not teaching at a Catholic school, on some level you are kind of being more influenced by one side of the debate or, uh, than the other. And society um, back then was a lot more, um, well, okay, maybe not, not Adam Smith's day, but in the Reformation era was a lot more divided. So you're coming out of that. So trying to put, put all this together has to be 
uh, a, a gargantuan task because I'm as you're talking here, I'm thinking more about the era and more about what's going on and how does he see the world. And here he is teaching at a school where he has to confirm the confessions, um, and he's not teaching at a Catholic school, which um, which would potentially lead him to have uh, be influenced completely different if he had taught at a, a different university. Uh, yes, I agree with you. It is not an accident that modern Western economics did not come from somebody teaching at a Jesuit institution. That is, that is correct. But it's more than just, uh, it's more than just well, which university he was uh, a professor at. Um, we know uh, people like Adam Smith uh, and David Hume were international celebrities in their own lifetime. And so we know a lot biographically about these people. Uh, we know who their friends are. We know who they dined with. We know what clubs uh, they belong to. And Smith's friends were very much within uh, what they called the moderate wing of the Church of Scotland, uh, what we would today think of as the group that was uh, moving away from rejecting the idea of uh, predestination according to Calvin. Uh, let me give you just one example. Uh, Smith and Hume were very eminent in their day. They were founding members of something called the Select Society. Uh, Scotland in the Enlightenment period was famous, still is famous, for all of these dining clubs and debate societies and all that. The Select Society was the most distinguished, the most prestigious of them. And Adam Smith and David Hume were both members. Of the 31 original founding members, including the two of them, five of the 31 were Church of Scotland clergymen. All five, all five were part of this moderate group within the Church of Scotland. And to give you another example of how important and pervasive um, uh, religion was in those days, one of the five was a fascinating character named William Robertson, who served simultaneously as head of the Church of Scotland and also the principal in our modern vocabulary, we would say the president of the University of Edinburgh. Think of that. The head of the church was the president of the university. It would be as if the president of my university were the head of the Central Con Conference of American Rabbis. Well, he isn't. Or it would be as if the immediate past president of my university uh, were the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church of the United States. Well, she wasn't. But this guy Robertson served both roles uh, simultaneously. So it was a different era. And to repeat, religion was more central, more pervasive, uh, more important than anything we would know today. And, and so you talked about Church of Scotland. We mentioned Scotland. Uh, and then we kind of made a, a passing blow at the Jesuit school. <laughs> um, but we're sitting here in the U.S. And um, I'm curious if you would agree uh, that the U.S., um, the way it's embraced uh, a liberal democracy and capitalism is different than our European friends. Um, how do I, you kind of... Yeah, yes, yes, I certainly would believe that. <laughs> okay. I didn't think it was a leap, but you know, you're the expert here. Um, no, how do we go you're, from... You're right on. So how do we go from the Church of Scotland, Adam Smith, mm -hmm. to the U.S., um, and, and then the demarcation between Europe and America? 
it would be uh, simply wrong to say that all of the great economists after Adam Smith's day uh, were Americans. That's just not right. Nevertheless, in my book, after Smith's death, I focus on America, and for just the reason that you say. Uh, in starting from about the middle of the 20th century, uh, Americans have been the leaders in uh, world thinking, in uh, economics. It is no surprise no coincidence that the great majority of the Nobel Prize winners in economics have been either American born or have been teaching at American uh, universities. Uh, and so in my book, about the first half of the book takes us up through Smith's death, which was in 1790. And then from there, I switch to the United States. Now, it turns out uh, that uh, as people in the United States did their economics, and I'm thinking about uh, people whose names might or might not be familiar uh, to our listeners uh, today, uh, overwhelmingly, uh, whether they were religious figures or not, uh, they were committed to ideas that were non-predestinarian and therefore that led themselves to this more um, optimistic uh, view of the human character uh, that Smith had imbibed in Scotland uh, a century earlier, and that into the more expansive view of human agency. And so in the book, I trace the evolution of economic thinking uh, after uh, Smith's death, but I trace it in the United States for precisely the reason you say, and also to be frank, I'm an American. Look, I'm an American. I'm an economist. I, I, uh, I was born in the United States. I teach at an American university. Uh, I've always, I've always lived in the United States, so that was my interest. And I show that one after another of these figures. Now, interestingly, a contrast uh, is that in the uh, new United States, um, some of the key economists. Uh, were actually religious figures. Uh, that was very different from Scotland. So, for example, the first person that we know of who taught a course in economics at a, an American university uh, was a man named John McVicker. Uh, McVicker was teaching at Columbia, and in keeping with the uh, character of Columbia University in those days, he was an Episcopal priest. Uh, and the person who wrote the best-selling economics textbook in the United States before the Civil War uh, was a man named Francis Wayland, who was the president of Brown University. And again, in keeping with the founding of Brown University, uh, Wayland was not only a Baptist, but he was a Baptist minister. So uh, unlike Smith, some of these people were uh, quite committed to religion, but in, importantly, the religion to which they were committed uh, was not predestinarian in the Calvinist sense. They did believe that people had the ability through their actions to uh, influence whether they were among the saved or not. And I believe this, uh, uh, th this belief in the power of human agency spilled over into their economics. And in the book, I give lots of examples of how that was true. So uh, just a, maybe a slight tangent here. I've, reading some of the, the Austrians, sometimes um, I, I'm curious about 
the way that they deduce things because it seems that they deduce things from a um, at least some of the older ones from a non-religious perspective. Um, and is it is it right to say or is it wrong? Here's your thought that you can't separate your religious beliefs um, from how you're going to work work out your economic practices. <clears throat> That's a good question, Ryan, and, and I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't want to make some kind of strong claim that if a person is a strongly committed Calvinist today, we do have them, and so, you know, there, there, there are some. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was doing one of these, uh, uh, I was doing one of these podcasts uh, with a man named Dr. Albert Moeller, who is the... Uh, uh, president of the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, and although it is not true uh, that all Baptists are predestinarians, indeed, uh, certainly not true, uh, Dr. Moeller made it a point uh, in our conversation to tell me he was, he is a predestinarian uh, Calvinist. Now, would that mean that if Dr. Moeller had gone into economics instead of theology, he would not have been uh, able to um, uh, to uh, think as a modern economist does? Uh, that seems a little. That seems strong. Seems strong to me. And we certainly have a number of uh, prominent economists today that are um, that are Roman Catholics. I think. Part of what happens, remember, we're, we're talking about a discipline that's now 250 or so years old by the standards of physics that's still young, but even so, 250 years is a while. And I think what happens is that as any intellectual discipline matures, it <clears throat> takes on a momentum and a a belief structure of its own, and therefore people either enter into those belief structures or not. So uh, I don't think the personal belief structure of any given economist is determinative of much, if anything, today. We had on um, Dr. Patricia Farah a few episodes ago, and she's um, a historian of science. And one of the things that she said was, historically speaking, the scientists would you know, kind of co-mingle their scientific study when how they believe that tied to their religious, you know, belief in God. Um, you talked about kind of the, the shift in economists over the last 250 years. Um, did the older economists, or has there been a period where economists have distinctly tried to tie their economic thoughts to religion, or has it always been kind of a, a separate discipline uh, to itself? Well, I can think of two, <clears throat> two groups who've done that. Uh, one, there is an identifiable uh, line of economic thinking uh, called Catholic economics. Uh, the great thinker in this uh, line of thought in uh, the last half century uh, was a man named Father Bernard Lonergan. Uh, and um, at my university, Harvard, we don't, uh, we don't teach that. Uh, but I assume there must be Catholic universities around the country where Father Lonergan's thought uh, is uh, uh, very much uh, taught. And secondly, uh, there are uh, Jewish uh, scholars uh, who uh, focus uh, carefully on the uh, economic ideas embodied 
to a certain extent in the Hebrew Bible, but especially in the Talmud. Uh, we don't teach that at my university either, but there are certainly places uh, where you could take a course, uh, where you could take a course in that. Uh, I have to say that, that neither of those lines of thought has penetrated much into mainstream economics. <clears throat> and I'm just giving you the two examples that I'm uh, aware of. I suppose if I had lived uh, any part of my life in the Middle East, I could probably tell you something about the way in which uh, Muslim uh, thinkers have uh, sure. uh, uh, developed certain lines of economics. But I, there, I don't even know enough about it to, to give you examples. Yeah. Another thing you mentioned that that struck me was the, this time period of 250 years. And for perspective, I think her book was, you know, 4,000 years of study in science. Um, so 250 years, to your point, is is not a long period of time. Um, it sounds old, but it's, it's really not. Um, so how, from this the grand scope of economics, how far along on the process are we? Do, do you view economics as, hey, we're down to... The end game, or is economics still a a blossoming field that we don't know a whole lot about, but we like to think that we do? Well, uh, <clears throat> to, to say the obvious, if I thought we were down to the end game, I would have picked something else. <laughs> you know, I I didn't, you know, there was nothing foreordained that I had to be an economist. Uh, I did not come from a family. My father was not an economist. I don't have uncles. Uh, who are economists? I, you know, there was there was nothing that made me be an economist. And if I thought we were down to the last details, uh, I would have chosen something different. So no, I don't. Uh, I don't think so. Um, uh, I see economics as both mature and not. Uh, the sense in which it's mature is the one I mentioned a, a while ago. I think economics is far enough along the way that our subject has developed a kind of internal momentum, uh, at least in terms of its fundamental theoretical core. And what that means is that the worldview that people bring to their study of economics, I don't think is influential in the way in which in the book I portray Adam Smith's worldview as being influential. I think we're past that. Nonetheless, I think economics is really uh, very imperfect in our ability just to answer the most fundamental questions. Why do we have uh, business downturns? Why are there times when masses of people are unable to uh, find uh, work? Well, now, having this conversation right when we're having, we're tempted to say, oh, something comes along like the COVID pandemic and we can understand that. Well, yes, but there have been lots of business recessions in the United States within both your lifetime and mine that have had absolutely nothing to do with the COVID pandemics or any kind of pandemic. And why did those occur? Well, it's not that economists have nothing to say, but I would sure love to think that uh, by the time my grandchildren are mature adults, uh, whether they become economists or not, uh, whoever are the economists of that day will have a lot more to say than we do now. 
going back to a point you made a minute ago about international superstar, obviously that looked a lot different back then because they didn't have, you know, these kind of platforms. So it was a lot slower, but being well known, how, how much do you think today um, versus back then um, economic thought is helped by the access to a confluence of ideas, right? So today, economists in Cambridge, which 70 degrees year round, can read someone from across the world instantaneously, correspond with them. Um, so there's probably some pros there because you can react back and forth. Whereas back in Adam Smith day, you might've got a letter from economists or someone asking you a question and you had to sit, ponder, write out a long letter, send it back. It took a couple months to get there. Um, so do you see those as mainly beneficial today? Or do you think that maybe it makes us over uh, the economists overreact to what they're seeing? No, I think it's very beneficial, uh, Ryan. And incidentally, it was beneficial then. To me, it is, and I talk about this in the book, uh, it is not an accident that Adam Smith lived in France for two and a half years right at the time he was starting the project that became the book we know as The Wealth of Nations, uh, and especially uh, in uh, Paris. He became very friendly with a French economist named Canet and um, apparently learned a lot from him. Uh, Smith later said that if Canet had still been living when The Wealth of Nations uh, was published, he would have dedicated the book to him. But alas, Canet had died two years earlier, so he couldn't, uh, couldn't do it. So yes, I think even then, uh, contact uh, with other uh, thinkers is very important. And I think it's, it's especially important in just the way that you say today. If I were to pick an area that uh, makes today radically different from 250 years ago, I would say it's in the availability of information about economics. Uh, uh, national level statistics were unknown in those days. Today, if uh, you were to ask me a question about the uh, GDP of some country anywhere in the world and you gave me five minutes to go consult, you know, turn this off and consult my com the internet, I could, go, I could go look it up. And it's not just the GDP, it's endless things, production, sales, inventories, investment, uh, consumer saving, just one after another uh, aspect of what economists study. If you go back and read The Wealth of Nations, which has a lot of empirical content in it, it's almost shocking how crude Smith was in his use of statistics. And it's not that Smith wasn't a smart man. He was a super smart man. It's that he was doing the best he could with what was available uh, at the time, and other great economists of the period, too. The next uh, uh, great English economist after him was Malthus. Uh, Malthus's great work on population was in 1798. It is astonishing uh, how crude uh, the uh, statistical part is. So I would say that's the key thing in which we have an overwhelming advantage that our predecessors of 250 years ago didn't. Okay, so that's a that's a fascinating point there. Thinking about that, um, so he has limited access to data, he, you know, because there's no Google. Obviously, he can't pull up the GDP of Madagascar at the drop of a hat, um, and so he's a lot more crude. Um, how then do you, as an economist today, judge 
Um, so you have the historical importance of his work, right, which is that he kind of pushed forward the discussion. So there's that, but also then there's a question to be asked is, okay, being that he was working with, working with more limited resources as far as the availability of data and statistics, um, do we challenge more of what he said, not to be disrespectful, but just out of an, uh, the realization that he had access to less data, and if he would have had it, he potentially would have thought differently. Well, yes, of course, if he'd had more data, he would have thought uh, differently, but it may be worth the taking just a minute to make clear what Smith's great contribution was, because uh, I take on uh, quite frontally in the book whether whether we're right to think of Adam Smith as the father of our uh, subject. Uh, he's, Smith certainly had predecessors, and Smith certainly got some things wrong. Uh, but are we right in this? I argue that we were, uh, we are. Uh, Smith's great contribution was to understand the importance of the competitive market mechanism. Uh, people for about it, oh, good 50 years before Smith, uh, had some vague notion that uh, if you go into the market and just try to do the best you can for yourself, and I go into the market and just try to do the best I can for myself, somehow it will work out that we're going to end up making not only ourselves, but other people better off too. Uh, there's a famous expression of this uh, in 1705 by Bernard Mandeville called The Fable of the Bees, for example. Uh, but Mandeville had, he had the insight that that was true, but he had no understanding of the circumstances under which it was true, and he had no understanding of what made it true. And so Smith's great contribution was to uh, understand, but then beyond that in the wealth of nations to articulate very clearly the importance uh, and the functioning of the competitive market mechanism. That's what he gave us. And that's what's remained the analytical apparatus of economists ever since. Now, uh, is that right in all circumstances? No, because what even if you take a first year economics course today, uh, the first thing they're going to do is to tell you about uh, how the competitive market mechanism works. And the second thing they're going to do is to say, but, you know, it can only work if markets are competitive. And then they're going to go on to talk about all sorts of circumstances in which it doesn't work because markets aren't competitive. And then the question is a matter of public policy is, well, what do you do about that? So I don't for a minute want to suggest that Smith had everything that we know. But the key conceptual insight that gave us our analytical apparatus, the, the notion of the competitive market uh, mechanism and how it works, that was Adam Smith. And that's kind of what's hard about the, the other thing about history is you go back and you find someone who was uh, revolutionary, groundbreaking, whatever term you want. And you, you, might, you have to carve, you have to kind of focus on uh, their main contribution um, but you're tempted to get caught up in all the other stuff. It's like, okay, well, we need to build on top of the main contribution or analyze or reflect or, or whatever the, the objective there is. And sometimes it seems that that's the, 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 the harder task to do because you're, you're kind of mesmerized by these uh, larger-than-life characters in history. Um, okay, you mentioned a first – I'm going to wrap up here with a few 
easy questions for you now. Uh, you mentioned first year economic students. Most people, uh, myself included, around economists, um, you know, we, we can read books like this, but also be like, okay, we want to study, you know, easy entry level economic type stuff. We want to be able to think about things economically. Um, what do you recommend for the average citizen walking around? How much knowledge of economics should we have? I think every citizen of this republic ought to have some fundamental knowledge of economics, like what's taught in a first year course. I mean, look, we're called on to vote. We read about issues on the paper in the newspaper every day. It's thing I mentioned before, inflation, unemployment. I mean, questions are in the newspaper every day. Is the Federal Reserve making interest rates too high or too low? Is the government spending too much or too little? Is the government taxing too much or too little? What should we think about the public debt? These are all not just issues of this moment. These are issues of every moment in one way or another. And we read about them in, on the newspaper. And it's in our era, it's impossible to imagine uh, a presidential election, for example, in which the two candidates didn't have at least one debate or one big part of one debate devoted to economics. So if I, um, I should say right out, we do not require introductory economics at my university, but it turns out that about half of the students take it anyway. And one of the trends that I think is just terrific is that more and more high schools around the country are offering uh, economics, and I hope that continues. Uh, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, but I bet we will get to a point at which the standard uh, student arrives at a decent American university already having had one year of economics. I think that's going to be uh, just wonderful. And within my lifetime, <clears throat> excuse me, I, within my lifetime, I saw this happening in mathematics. When I was in high school, uh, very few high schools taught calculus. Mine did not. Uh, I come from uh, Kentucky and I went to a public high school uh, in Kentucky and my high school, which I thought of then and I think of now as a pretty good high school, did not teach calculus. Well, in many, many high schools around the country now, high students do take uh, calculus and it is not true that every student arrives at Harvard having had a year of calculus but most do. And I think it's terrific. And I'm looking forward to the day when we can say something similar about uh, economics. But frankly, I think economics is even more important than the mathematics because of the role of economics and economic policy in, the, uh, in our public life. Uh, it is part of our republic to function as citizens, and we ought to be able to do that. Is part of that true because you're seeing it trickle down into high schools because we have just more people who have gone to college and they've taken some economics. And so therefore it kind of gets into the culture, if you will. Um, and so it's easier to communicate. So one of the things about if you're going to learn um, you know, a foreign language, if, if it's just you and one other person to speak it, it's very hard. But if you're around a bunch of people to speak it, it becomes easier to learn. Is that same thing true of learning something like calculus? Or economics from your perspective? I don't know. That's a very good question. And I don't know why, <clears throat> I mean, other than the fact that I, I would like to think people believe what I just said about the importance of sure. economics for our ability to function as citizens. I don't know why 
uh, it's specifically true that more and more high schools are teaching economics, but I sure know that they are, and I think it's great. Okay. Um, other than yourself, give us a couple of economists that you would encourage people to to go read. They don't necessarily have to be in the same uh, economic thought as you, but this, you, these are interesting thinkers, um, or they're very helpful. Um, obviously, if, if it's scholarly work or for the, the lay public, it doesn't matter. Uh, just two or three other economists that you'd recommend. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll suggest uh, two right off the bat. One uh, on the more conservative side of the political spectrum and one on the uh, one more on the left. On the conservative side, I would point to my uh, Harvard colleague, Greg Mankiw, uh, M-A-N-K-I-W, who I think is just terrific. And I don't always agree with him. Uh, he's probably uh, more conservative than I am. Uh, so I don't always agree with him on the policy, but I certainly agree with him on the economics. And then on the more uh, left-wing side, I would say point to Paul Krugman, uh, who writes for the New York Times. Uh, I don't ag agree with Paul all the time either. He's in the same way that Greg is more conservative than I am. Paul is more uh, left-wing, more liberal than I am. But I don't think there's a, these these are policy differences. I think uh, I don't think there would be any daylight uh, among any of the three of us on matters of fundamental economics. I think we all see the the economics <clears throat> in the same way. So I'd say those those are two people right off the bat that are well worth uh, well worth anybody reading. Okay. And so final question is your book obviously is Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. We'll link to that in the show notes. Um, what what next? What next are you looking to tackle? What 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 subject is it? What interests you now that you've released this book? My new project is on the uh, increasing reliance on robots and artificial intelligence in the labor force. Mm, yeah. I'm not interested in the technicalities of this. I don't know what goes on inside a robot and sure. uh, I'm not going to learn. Uh, but I, I've persuaded myself that if we look forward over the next generation, let's say the working lifetimes of the students whom I teach, I think the greatest challenge to our economics and our politics that will arise from the economic sphere will come from the impact on uh, working people that stems from, again, more automation, more artificial intelligence. I think some people will find that their jobs have become more interesting, more challenging, more productive, uh, and of course, more remunerative but I think a larger group of people uh, will find that their jobs have become less interesting, less challenging. Uh, the skill re requirement will go down. And look, I'm an economist. And so as soon as you tell me the skill requirement <laughs> in the job goes down, I know that the wage will go down. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to have um, further tendencies toward what some of my labor economist friends call the uh, polarization of the labor market, why pushing apart, hollowing out of the middle income jobs, more people being pushed 
either up or down, but also uh, in the group, maybe two thirds, I'm afraid of workers who find their jobs less uh, rewarding. It's not just that they have less wages. I think we're going to go through a generation in which lots of people are going to say, look, I was educated to do something more interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or even could be uh, specific people, uh, people who lose their jobs because of automation, they'll find another job at some wage, but not only will they earn less, they'll say, you know, I, I used to do something more interesting. I used to do something where I felt that I was making more of a contribution. I think we're, I, I think this problem will go away in a hundred years, but it's not going to go away in 25 years and it may not go away in 40 years. So I'm trying to understand more about the problem. I'm not trying to reinvent myself as a labor economist. The country has plenty of good labor economists. We have some in my own department at Harvard. I, I don't need to do that. But in the spirit of the previous book that uh, I wrote for a broad audience called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth, uh, I, I'm concerned about the implications for our society, for our politics, and therefore I'd like to see if we can come up with something uh, to do about this, because trying to resist the trend is, is, is silly. That, that's just not going to happen. Uh, the trend is going to be there, and the issue is going to be how we as a society cope with it. Okay. Well, look forward to that when it comes out, hopefully in the next few years, because this is a, a subject that a subject that's got a lot of controversial and hot takes. And, you know, there's always a, a blog post somewhere about this. So I'm curious to see uh, where you come in. And, and as someone who's got kids myself from age of 13 down to two uh, and two in between there, that it's something that will impact their lives. Uh, for many, many years to come. So, uh, Dr. Friedman, once again, the book um, is Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. We'll link to that in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. And as you mentioned, we have other books. We'll link to your Amazon author page um, there as well. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this discussion and look forward to your next book and talking to you then. Great. Thank you, Ryan. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Lots of good luck to you. <laughs>